Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 40 of the Mandolin's Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you this week by Peghead Nation, with Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including Beginning Mandolin and Intermediate Bluegrass Mandolin, and now the new Fingerboard um, program, Sharon Gilchrist, Bluegrass Mandolin Jam Favorites and the Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh, Monroe-style Mandolin with Mike Compton, Melodic Mandolin Tunes with John Reichman, Chord Melody Mandolin with Aaron Weinstein, Irish Mandolin with Marlo Fibish, and Theory for Mandolin and Fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month free. Just go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. Hope everybody's had themselves a great week um, and uh, staying safe and healthy. I want to thank my new patrons. Thank you so much. We've got the Patreon page if you want to support the podcast. Um, uh, first thing that I always recommend you do, it is a free one. Just hit subscribe if you're listening on a platform for the first time and if, or if you haven't subscribed and you've listened multiple times. Um, that always helps. If you have a few minutes, maybe leave a review at the iTunes store. And um, finally, at the Patreon, you can support it in two different ways. There's $4, which is just a donation monthly to support the podcast, or for $8, or the price of a craft beer, uh, as I like to say, uh, I have videos and tabs on there. A lot of 10-minute-a-day ideas and some different things uh, like that. And I think I might have a concept for a new one. I'm going to work with that here in the next week or so and see if if that works out, but I think it might be a cool one uh, for learning tunes. So anyway, you can also go to my Instagram and Facebook and like those as well. Uh, you can also go this week's guest, Isaac Iker. He has a website. He's doing some online lessons, and he was uh, really, really cool enough to uh, give me access to a track uh, called Lullaby of Birdland, and it's at the very end of this podcast, and he talks a bit about playing electric mandola and um, he he talks about this tune, and it's not available anywhere, and so I asked if he would be cool if I put it at the end of the podcast for the listeners, and he was like, absolutely. So, be sure to check that out and go and check his stuff out. Other than that, the Spotify playlist is free. You can go and follow that where we uh, put the tunes that are played this week during the podcast, and each week there's hundreds of songs now on that playlist, so go to that as well. And let's get into the podcast. Next week's guest, Emery Lester. Excited to talk to him and excited to be doing episode number 40 with Isaac. Cheers, everybody. All right, now I'd like to welcome to the podcast Isaac Iker. Isaac, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm glad to finally be speaking with you. We had the schedule a couple times as dealing with different things. I, as I was telling you before we, we started, uh, I just moved into a new house. So that's kind of been time consuming, but we got moved in. And so kind of resuming some of the normal activities like mandolins and beer. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Congratulations. Thanks, man. Yeah, you're welcome. And you kind of had, you kind of had some big plans here. Um, we're still in the, uh, in the midst of this pandemic today, we're recording this and some of the states are starting to open up, but you had some, some touring plans here for, 
over the summer that that kind of got postponed, correct? Man, it's crazy, this whole pandemic, how it's affected so many people and, you know, musicians not being able to play gigs. But um, as far as the summer, man, it's crazy to think about all the things that are canceled. I was, let's see, May, I was going to be going to Montreal to do a, a video tutorial um, with DC Music School. I don't know if your your listeners are that familiar with that um, platform, but uh, this guy, Dennis Chang, who lives in Montreal, he has the, his thing is called DC music school. And it's really um, focused on gypsy jazz artists and j- other like jazz guitar players and violin players. And I was going to be his first mandolin player to do video tutorials uh, in the style of Isaac Iker. That's how he, you know, uh, advertises it or frames it, you know, as um, just me teaching about like my style, but you know, that's postponed for now. Um, and I had uh, tour dates coming up with uh, Forrest and Kate O'Connor um, that I've been playing with them for about a year and a half. And uh, we were really just trying to get the ball rolling or building some momentum. They um, are about to release an album on Compass Records, which I had the honor of recording several tracks on. And, you know, uh, we had dates this month and um, next month and those things are all canceled and who's, who knows when we're going to be playing live shows again, you know? Where, who, who were you going to be playing with when you were going over? So I met this guitar Europe? player, uh, Judith Beckendorf. Um, she is from Germany. She's from Dresden and she went to Belmont here in Nashville where I live. And I met her at the station Inn one night. Um, I was playing with, uh, filling in, doing a gig, playing with Brad Bula and his group, uh, Fireball Mail. And, this was probably almost two years ago now. And, you know, we hit it off. It was really cool getting to know her. And she actually played a little bit like in the middle, like in the intermission of our set and, um, we stayed in touch and she really liked my playing. And she invited me to play, do a little tour with her band. She has a folk band, uh, that they call, um, uh, standard crow behavior, which I guess is a reference to an old, um, uh, Prairie home companion bit. Um, but so I was really looking forward to the trip and I was trying to work it, you know, I was really kind of working with her on scheduling, uh, organizing the trip. She had set up the shows and then I was going to be flying into Paris. Um, and I, last year, uh, I taught at a camp called Django in June, which, uh, which was fantastic, but I met all these great musicians from across the pond and really hit it off and became friends with several guys from Paris. Um, who do gypsy jazz among other things. But when I saw this opportunity to go to Europe, it just made complete sense. So, you know, I wanted to capitalize on this opportunity flying over there. And so I had set up a couple things. I was for sure had a gig with my friend, Martin Giovanni, who lives in Paris. And, um, you know, just kind of one of those tours that, you know, it wasn't going to be like a huge thing, but it was definitely going to be uh, a great experience and uh, just a great gigging uh, trip. But um, now I'm just staying here in Nashville right now. Well, you know what? You're making good time of it, though. Uh, there's there's two things you can do in a situation like this, which is which is I mean, this time is unheard of, uh, you know, for uh, for us. And you can either get stuff done or lay around and complain about it. And it sounds like you've taken the high road. Yeah, man, just trying to stay busy, really. This time, it seems like everybody's teaching and uh, offering online lessons, but I feel like, you know, I wanted to do the same. And I I honestly waited when this 
crisis started happening and all the gigs started canceling, um, you know, I was, there was about a week where I didn't really know what to do. Like I didn't have a game plan. Um, but then, you know, I just kind of started thinking, it's like, I, you know, I have people who reach out to me that want to take lessons and I really enjoy teaching. So that is a really good avenue. Uh, although there's so many people who do offer, you know, there's so many resources online to learn mandolin, but I feel that anybody can do it still because everybody, if, if you're offering something that's unique, that, you know, nobody's going to show be teaching like my, what I do necessarily. I mean, of course I'll teach, you know, beginning things and like things that they could get, uh, from a lot of places, but still even maybe somebody hears you play and they just want to hear like the way you would explain it or hear your take on it because they just like your sound or they like your playing. So I've been fortunate enough, you know, over the years, I've been kind of developing, you know, a small following of people that are, you know, supporters, you know, people who support my music and, and I you know, reach, you know, put something out on social media, which is like, Hey, I'm be, you know, I'd be happy to offer, you know, teach you a mandolin lesson. And I, I got a really nice, response i got i got you know a handful of people that reached out and said like yeah i want to get a lesson so i've been doing that i mean this this week i have about three or four students so you combine that with like different other little projects you know um in addition to playing music so when i got when i went to college i went to the university of oklahoma i'm from oklahoma and when I went to college, I got really interested in learning Spanish and that became kind of like a side, uh, well, it was, uh, it ended up becoming my major in college and I just, you know, dedicated myself to learning the language. And I've always, since then, it's been about 10 years now, a little over 10 years that I started learning and that has become a big part of my life. And when I moved to Nashville, um, I've been here about six years. Um, I was looking, you know, contrary to popular belief, like not, there aren't a ton of people that are hiring, you know, a jazz mandolin player or somebody who like, you know, that's their thing. Sure. You, have right, to really, right. you know, and I have, when I moved to Nashville, I was looking for some kind of work and it's like, you know, I decided because I had spent all this time learning Spanish. I actually spent a year in Spain when I was in college. I decided to try to find some kind of opportunity where I could continue to learn, you know, work on Spanish, but use that as like a skill. Um, and I ended up over the years, kind of where it's taken me, I, I began to in, interpret, I interpret Spanish. And um, my wife actually is from Colombia. And so we speak Spanish at the, you know, at her house a lot. Um, and we're teaching our daughter Spanish as well. But that has become like a nice side gig in addition to music. I do it uh, freelance just in the same way that I do music. So the opportunities come almost like gigs, you know, like assignments or gigs. And, and I do medical appointments. Um, and so it's, it's been great for me to, to kind of support me and allow me to, to grow and, and make all those connections in Nashville and kind of build up the, you know, the different things that I do with music, but at the same time, having a little bit of stability, something that's helping me, um, you know, just continue to, to be chasing down the, you know, going down that path of jazz mandolin, as it were. Yeah. Well, you also, that's seeped into your music a little bit as well. It's crazy how, you know, like going down that path, learning Spanish, it's, you know, the things that it opens you up to the experiences that you can have, like me spending a year in Spain, 
I've spent a lot of time in Mexico as well. Now I've been to Colombia with my wife. All of those things, it's just all part of my life. And I'm always thinking about music and always getting, you know, even for musicians that you can get influence, things can influence your music that doesn't, it doesn't have to be music that you listen to. It can be artwork or something, you know, like let's say a painting that you just get inspiration. That's like, it inspires something in you, but you have like your artistic voice with music or your instrument. And I feel like that's true with Spanish, my, my love of language and that process of learning Spanish, you know, it's all related. Was on your um, first album, or not for, I shouldn't say first album, um, your latest album, Native Language, there's a song on there, and now I feel like I'm going to say this wrong because I don't speak Spanish, but uh, Valenciana, is that is that how you say it? Yeah, but no, that's, that's definitely, you know, um, so it's not, it, so Native Language is my first album. It's my first solo album, but I've definitely recorded on, you know, I recorded that two years ago and I've been recording for a long time on different projects and I've recorded some things with my family and my, my dad, Shelby Iker, um, who has always been my number one teacher and, you know, the person guiding me, uh, musically and, um, but yeah, so I wrote that song Balenciana when I was in Spain, actually. And it's kind of funny because I was in Valencia, Spain. That's where I studied abroad. Um, and that's a beautiful place. You know, that that is one of the memories that I cherish most. Um, and such a great time for me to do it in college, you know, very formative period for me. But I was really listening to a lot of different stuff. I, I've been into gypsy jazz for a long time. And also at the time that I wrote that piece, the inspiration was more coming from Brazilian music. And I'm sure you've heard of the phenomenal mandolinist, uh, Amilton Giolanda. Oh yeah. From Brazil. I was listening to some of him and his project with Yamandu Costa, the guitar player, seven string guitar player. That kind of inspired me to work on that. Like I, I was hearing these things that, um, but I ended up just naming it Valenciana because it was, it's like a, you know, it has the name Valencia in it. And it was just, you know, it was also inspired by just being there. That's so cool. That's great to hear. Just like that absorption um, and mm-hmm. how, how different, I mean, we'd all sound exactly the same if we listened to all the same stuff, you know, there'd be, that's what I love right. about this is talking about the influences and how people get steered in different directions. And you talked about playing with your family. How did you get into mandolin? Well, so it all really starts because my dad, my dad is a violin fiddle player, um, among other things. He plays mandolin, he plays guitar. 
But uh, my dad is a lifelong, you know, career musician. He played country music for a long time. When I was born, he was playing with Roy Clark. And my mom is a singer as well. She then at a later later point got really into jazz and jazz standards. And my, you know, my family household when I was growing up, there was so much influence from just my parents' profession, you know. Um, And so when I was a little kid, we would go see my dad play. We'd go see my mom sing. And so I started taking piano lessons. I started when I was six. And I think it's, that's kind of an important part of my story about how, you know, my musical upbringing, because by doing the piano exercises and, and getting a foundation in that, I was learned, I learned how to read music before I went to school and learned how to just read, wow. you know, words. Yeah. And I think that was really important because then when I was, you know, in those, that time period, so let's say when I was like eight, um, I had picked up the mandolin cause I was interested. I saw my dad play at the house, you know, he would just, he was, you know, get the mandolin out and just improvise. And I was fascinated. I remember asking him, like, I think I must've been eight years old. You know, what, what are you playing? Like, what, what is that? And he just said, Oh, I'm just making it up. And that fascinated me, you know? Um, and I think since the beginning, I was always fascinated in just that ability of just speaking that musical language, like with your instrument. And so that's when I went for the mandolin and we kind of determined it was kind of my dad's guidance. I mean, he, I liked the mandolin a lot, but, you know, I think at the time I was very little. So we, we looked at the guitar and determined that the guitar was like a little big and <laughs> a little bit more difficult sure. for that reason. Yeah. And I mean, it was slow getting started. Like you, I did a lesson, but, you know, part of our, you know, the, the beginning of like, here are the basics of the mandolin. My dad showed me technique and like the, my foundations of, you know, pick strokes and, just general technique. And of course I was interested in like Chris Beely had a homespun uh, VHS tape. Oh, that yeah. was like, you know, that's the, the resource for, you know, the gold standard for proper technique or, you know, that type of modern style picking and, and all that, right. that technique. And so my dad, you know, he was guiding me, teaching me and he showed me, you know, I already knew how to read music. And so he would just print a fiddle tune and say, well, here's your next one. You know, my dad for many years, he was my number one inspiration teacher, you know, uh, and still he's a ginormous inspiration for me today. And What are some of those early fiddle tunes that you loved playing? Did you have some favorites? Well, I can tell you the first fiddle tune that I started playing was Buffalo Gals. Um, kind of like, you know, not something you're necessarily going to call it a jam. I mean, I like playing it now because it's almost kind of ironic that it's like to make something, to take something that's so simple and to make it, you know, really, you can make it cool. I mean, there's, you know, I think somebody like Aubrey Haney has a version of that one. And There's other people out there too. You know, it's, it's one of those old tunes. And then it's after that, my second tune, I think would have been red haired boy. Oh, cool. 
And, you know, for years, I mean, for like the first couple of years, you learn a tune and then you just, that's like your material. Or, you know, <laughs> right. you've got your in tunes that you play. And, but it's kind of funny because, so I grew up, like when I started playing mandolin, I, it was fiddle tunes, but also pretty soon after the fiddle tunes, like I started learning that there was so much influence from jazz. I mean, I'm not going to say everything, but you know, so much of it comes from that, that inspira- inspiration and guidance from my dad. So he was a big Grisman fan, you know, and which therefore I was a big Grisman fan <laughs> and Mike Marshall. And, and so like when I started learning these fiddle tunes, not very long after I was working on some jazz standards, getting my feet wet in jazz standards. You know, when I was like 16, 17, 18, kind of about in that time, I was getting more and more interested in jazz and listening to so much of it. And I was like, loving even more than ever i was loving the rosenberg trio oh and also yeah. things like you know listen to like not all who wander are lost chris Seely, you know but these are these things that like were formative like influences in my my musical identity but just at that time getting even more interested and in wanting to do those things and like play gypsy jazz and like hearing what they did stylistically and like the harmonic palette and i was just so you know you know, completely like becoming obsessed with that kind of stuff. And it's always been perpetually, you know, been getting more obsessed. And Do you remember, do you remember the first gypsy jazz song that you learned or jazz song? I can't remember how old I was, but maybe 12 or 13, but there was an opportunity to play with my mom. And I can't remember if my dad was playing. He must have, but he, my mom was going to sing at the Oklahoma jazz hall of fame, which is to this day, like still a place that my parents and brother play uh, a lot. And my mom was going to sing. It was like a Gershwin show. Uh, and my mom was going to sing a couple of tunes. And I remember like trying to just play, you know, trying to get my, my head around uh, Swonderful and um, Our Love is Here to Stay. It's very which are you know some of my favorites my mom's favorites as well like of those the gershwin tunes but it started definitely early you know learning being exposed to jazz and, and all you know, like david grisman and i remember like if you if you take a, a dog tune like emd or something like that mm-hmm. it's it's like you know dog music is kind of like a mix of bluegrass lots of different things but like you could say like bluegrass and jazz and like gypsy tone, like like harmonic palette. And if you take a tune like tune like EMD, where you've got these like you could you could do substitutions on these chords and play like really jazzy like out ideas or not. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But so those tunes like that have been there for, you know, it's kinda of since the beginning when I started playing and, and but then over the years it's just like kind of getting exposed to more different styles, different players expanding growing you know my my ability to to hear what's happening did you spend hours and hours playing when you had that time i did so when i was 14 i went uh to winfield the walnut valley mandolin cha- uh, championship mandolin contest oh yeah which is like it's like two and a half hours from where i'm from but that was the first time we went my you know my dad had been to that festival a long time ago but it was the first time I had ever got to go to that festival. And when I was 14, uh, with the tunes that I knew and the things that I was doing on the mandolin, 
I got in the top five in that contest, which was like, it seemed, you know, at the time it was like a huge achievement for me. Oh yeah. But I remember, um, when I got into the top five, you know, there's the first round and you do two songs, two pieces. And then the second round, if you get in the top five, you have to do two more. And I remember like not really having much to say in that second round. And that's why I didn't, I didn't, uh, you know, I got like honorable mention, whatever it's like fourth or fifth place. Then the next year when I was 15, I came back and I thought, Oh man, I'm like really prepared. Like I've, I've got it. And I didn't even get in the top five. So that year, that's, that's kind of the time that I was like, you know, as interested in, in, you know, obsessed with the mandolin, you know, as I ever had been. And I remember just thinking like, I wanted that so bad. Like I really wanted to, to get, win a mandolin at that contest and, and just, you know, try to have some success there. So I remember when I was leading up to that, when, when I was uh, 15 and like getting ready to turn 16, that to me, like I would spend, like I figured out the things that I wanted to play at the contest. And I just would spend so much time like practicing the technique so that it was hours working on that stuff so that the, my muscle memory and the strength in my hands and the, that mental preparation, I would work on really like my chops at that time. What are the tunes? Man, I did um, Wild Fiddler's Rag. Alan Bybee because he was an influence for me when I was a kid you know oh, he was so super nice to me I, I he was an instructor at um the Roanoke Bluegrass Weekend and he was there like one of those first years and was really an inspiration to me and he was super nice to me and I loved his version of Wild Fiddler's Rag so that was one of the tunes and then I did Lime Rock oh cool uh, which is another similar in that style you know and then I did a tune my dad wrote, which actually, the tune is called Mischievous Swing. Is that on the, the family album that's, that you have floating out there? I... Yeah, something I played in that contest when I was 16, and you know, and it was cool because it's like, it's gypsy, kind of like a gypsy tune um, with those gypsy jazz changes. And it really offered me like an opportunity to set myself apart from, you know, to do something outside the box. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that festival, at that, at that contest, that's kind of an important element. Um, it depends like year to year. It's like whoever, who knows what the judges are interested in hearing but and then the fourth tune that i did uh that year that i won uh when i was 16 that was i did the uh, uh bach partita uh the prelude in e major oh yeah i uh, like i did a portion of it because you can't do the whole thing because they don't give you enough time sure, sure. but i did like a, a a portion of it like let's say uh two minutes of it and um what what mandolin did you win that year what is what was the prize that year i got a weber oh cool i can't remember is it the yellowstone i don't remember which one it's been a long time sure sure been, i'm I'm, get, I'm getting ready to be 30 this year so that was 
14 years ago. And I had that Weber for, you know, a few years and I ultimately ended up selling it. Um, now I just have one X, I, you know, over the years I've, I've actually gotten three different mandolins at, um, Winfield cause I've won twice. And there was one year where I got second, um, in 2010, I guess. And then I also won the contest at Rocky grass and I got a Sam Bush mandolin. So all these different mandolins over the years, and I, I would kind of, you know, the mandolin that I was playing during probably from the time I was 12, 11 or 12 until I was probably 21, 22, I had a Gibson F9. Oh, no kidding. And it was the most basic mandolin, but it was just, it was solid. You know what I mean? Oh, it was yeah. like, it was, the tone was good enough. And I remember, cause I took that mandolin to me when I was in, I took it with me uh, to Spain when I was in college. And that was a really big year for me. So I think, I feel like I just spent so much time with the instrument and I, you know, made some strides. But um, I also figured out that year that I was tired of playing my F9 because <laughs> that was like the last year that I had it. When I got back to the United States, I was really excited. I'm like, I'm going to get a new mandolin, something that's better, that's got better tone. And I ended up selling a couple things, you know, to make that happen. And that's when I got into an Ellis. Oh, yeah. And then I ended up, you know, over, I played that for several years, recorded with it. Then I ended up getting uh the mandolin that i have now my Haydn. oh those are beautiful yeah it's it's the best instrument i've ever played or not maybe not played but i mean it's hard to say how do you say it's kind of subjective anyway <laughs> sure sure but it's definitely the best instrument i've ever owned and, and had the privilege of playing and growing with you know i've had it now for probably four years um it was finished in 2015 and i got it from my good friend forrest o'connor he had it custom built for him um, and then, you know, he had it for a while and he decided he, he wanted something different, like a different sound. And he asked me, cause he knew, you know, we're mandolin buddies and we'll go to Carter's or go to Gruen's and play mandolins and nerd out and talk about tone and playability, all those things. And, and so he knew I was into Haydn, you know, that I, I liked his mandolins. And so he, he asked me before he put it up for sale, he said, would I be interested in uh, and I'm so glad he did because that's the mandolin I still play, and I'm, you know, I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, they look killer too. I'm, uh, that that guy does some great work. Probably most the two things that I'm most attracted to. I mean, yes, his mandolins look impeccable and they look, you know, top notch. But the playability, the tone, and the playability. Mm -hmm. To me, the tone. He has a very unique kind of signature sound, and my mandolin sounds a little bit different than some of his other ones, but it still sounds like a Haydn. It's actually got an Engelman top, um, but it does sound like that his signature kind of sound, but also the the playability to me. I don't think I've played any other uh, builder's mandolin. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some that get close, but to me, the playability um, of Haydn's mandolins, it, it's almost like you're playing an electric guitar wow. sometimes. Do you do your own like setup stuff or do you have somebody you do it does it for you? I don't. In, in the past, I would, you know, try to mess with my action. And I, you know, sometimes I would successfully get it in a place where I liked it. But I always kind of learned that even when I thought it was okay, I would take it to somebody or somebody would see it and they'd be like, oh, actually, what you need to do is this. <laughs> my my friend here in town, um, Dan Voigt, he builds a great mandolin. He's actually building me an A model right now. Oh, cool. And he has set up my mandolin, my Haydn, um, 
last year and he did a great job. He, he gave me new frets and did a setup job. But most recently I had Haydn do the setup. He actually did a couple things for me on my mandolin. And so right now I think it's playing better than ever or best, you know, the best that it's ever played. Mm-hmm. What do you, uh, what do you string it up with and what kind of picks do you use? So I use um, the Diodario EXP 74s, um, and then I've used like I don't remember what number they are. You know the Chris Feely set. Oh yeah, yeah. Where the the A and E are um, slightly bigger. Yeah. So I've used those, and I like those. And I've even done you know occasionally put on like a, some heavy strings. You know the what is it EXP 75? 75. Yep. But um, I ha- I have to do the coated strings I, because my hands it's. I don't know what it is about it, but it's like uh, sometimes I sweat a lot, but even when I'm not sweating a lot, my, this seems like the sweat from my hands really kills mandolin strings. I mean, it's been like that since I was a kid and my dad would always like, you know, it'd always be, it'd be funny. Like if my dad, like on one of his instruments had already, if he'd already played some gigs or like thought his strings were like on the end of their life, then he would, I would be, I would have like, total permission to play his instrument but if they had new strings it was like no not you know wait until they're like almost you know need to be changed and then i can play them. Uh, your superpower is corrosiveness <laughs> and then as far as picks i've been using you know i'm i have followed the trend i finally got around to using blue chips i took me a long time to get there because they're they're pricier than other picks i was using the Wigan picks for a while, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I love them, too. And it's kind of like the same thickness. And I remember when uh, when Feely, you know, he's such a huge influence for so many mandolin players. I remember I was probably like 14 or 15 at the time, and he was playing with Edgar Meyer when they did their first uh, duo album. And they came through, I want to say, Fayetteville, which is not too far away from Tulsa. And my dad took me to see him, and I got to talk with Chris after the show. And I asked him about, you know, what he was using. And his at that time, his playing, I mean, it's like always been stellar and always gets better. But it was just so phenomenal at that time, you know, and he was using the Wigan. But um, I finally came around, you know, I got one and it's like, okay, this is pretty awesome. I'd use it for, you know, I would use it for a little bit and then I'd be like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not used to it. Because I do think that's true. You get used to something and you can then, if you're used to it, you can get better tone maybe the pick objectively speaking is like not as good, but if you're used to it, you can probably get better tone than you would with the thing that is so-called better, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. It'd be like playing basketball and putting somebody else's shoes on to me. Like you, the comfort zone too. There's something to be said about sure. that, you know, where you're just like, ah, <laughs> I know exactly where I'm at right now. For sure. Like you, you know, your gear or like you just get comfortable with what, whatever this, you know, piece of gear is or something. And, and now Thiele's got a new pick out through, uh, is it Diodario? I heard about that. I haven't tried it yet, though. I haven't tried it yet either. It's Kaysen. I'm not sure if that's how you say that. Um, yeah, it's crazy. I need to try one. Yeah, I do too. Maybe after I definitely the will. pandemic is over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I hear you. Well, I can afford to buy another $30 pick. <laughs> exactly. And then you also, I mean, since we're talking gear, this is great. Uh, you also, um, you play an electric mandola. Right. That has been a really fun uh, thing for me musically. I'll tell you kind of the story on that. Um, 
because one of the tracks that I shared with you that um, Lullaby of Birdland that I recorded about over six years ago now, because that would have been before I moved to Nashville. But that, so the mandolin, that mandola that I played on that was built by a guy in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that probably some of your listeners, many of your listeners have heard of Rob Bishline. He builds banjos, actually. And um, that's his main thing, you know, he his banjo building. Um, but my dad, he's known him for a long time, and my dad came up with this design. This was probably 1999 or 2000, and I don't know when it was finished. It was probably finished in 2000 or 2001. So it's been almost 20 years now. But it's a mandola with, it's a hollow body mandola with this, that's the shape of a Birdland guitar, but reduced in size, like proportionately. So I think it's, um, you know, a third smaller and it's the typical mandola scale length, um, but it's single string. So it's basically like another way to think about it would be like a short scale tenor guitar because it's the same tuning, but, and that instrument, you know, because I remember when my dad designed that and worked with Rob Bishline to get that built. And it's, it was such a unique instrument because um, it sounds like a guitar, but you can just play mandolin. And then all of a sudden now you have this tone that offers something else that sounds amazing on jazz or, or Western swing or, you know, whatever it is you're, you're trying to do electric. You know, for years, my dad was looking, trying to get him to, to build another one, maybe improve on it, make it a little bit better. But then, it must have been five years ago, going on six years, uh, we um, were talking to Jim Triggs. We were actually at Winfield, the festival in Kansas, um, Walnut Valley Festival. And we were talking to Jim Triggs, who you probably know, he, you know, he worked at Gibson. He builds Triggs guitars and mandolins, uh, which are archtop guitars and F style and I guess a style, but you know, uh, mandolins mm -hmm. and he, we play, I think we played one of these recordings for him and we were talking about what that instrument is. And he was really intrigued and really interested. And so we went, you know, we, we kept stayed in touch with him and we were talking to him about it and he said he'd be interested in building one. Wow. And so we went up to his shop, uh, in Kansas in Lawrence, Lawrence, Kansas, and he took measurements of, the Bishline electric mandola because the idea was great. It just needed to be improved on improved, improved upon a little bit. Mm -hmm. That was five years ago. Last year, he finally finished the project. Yeah. We were so grateful uh, that he, you know, took on this project in addition to his normal like guitars and mandolins that he was, he's built. This instrument is like the perfect marriage, like that in between uh, it's like a guitar, but it's, it's like a mandolin, you know? And right. so, but that has inspired me, you know, so much musically and it has allowed me to play with a lot of people, a lot of instrumentations and ensembles where, you know, that's my preferred instrument. If there's going to be drums or electric bass. Um, and I do a lot of gypsy jazz things on it too, mm -hmm. because it just sounds more like an arch top guitar than the mandolin, you know, it's kind of, sometimes you have to, Sadly, I mean, you have to be like in the right venue to make it work. Sure. More so, like if you have this instrument that's more like a guitar, you can almost do that more successfully. Or I don't know. It's kind of hard because some, oftentimes, 
you know, no one knows what the electric mandolin is. Right. Some yeah. people occasionally who are familiar with like the mandolin, they'll come up and say like, Hey man, like, so what is this? Is this like a mandolin? What, you know, and I, I tell them, Oh yeah, well it's a mandola. It's, you know, it's actually a fifth deeper than a mandolin. I've got like my whole spiel, but no one knows what like the, the electric mandola isn't uh, an established thing, you know? So it's kind of, there's a battle there. Like, you know, it's hard to like book that. Like, I, honestly, I just tell people like, yeah, it's an electric mandolin, <laughs> right. but it's, it's funny. Cause it also works better. Yeah. I mean like the acoustic mandolin, you can't beat it if you're, when you want to sound like an acoustic mandolin, but um, if you're playing like different styles of like jazz and stuff, I'll do lots of like, uh, I've been doing a brunch gig, filling in, playing with some guys here in Nashville for doing gypsy jazz and kind of, um, swing tunes and stuff. It sounds great on those types of gigs, you know? Um, cause for your average listener, uh, I mean, it just, it sounds so similar to a guitar. Uh, you're filling that role cause it's a little bit deeper. It allows you to really just take on that role as a guitar, which a lot of times that's what I'm trying to do with the mandolin is fill like with different styles of music, like gypsy jazz or, or what have you. I'm trying to fill that role where there's normally not a mandolin, but I'm just kind of like, going for like what the guitar would do Mm -hmm. so um i've had lots of lots of obviously like bluegrassy bluegrassy players on there but you're the first guy i think who's really um well i had tim tim connell on as well and and um but like the gypsy stuff that i've talked to who's really Mm -hmm. been into that and so i'd love to get some advice on you for somebody who might be listening to this and be like yeah you know how do you jump into Django right now are there some tunes that you recommend or some technique things that that would maybe be similar and or completely different that you should that you would point out to people. Sure, you know it's funny because I feel almost like I have a similar relationship with Django as I do with Bill Monroe. <laughs> That's so neat because I like I I come from that world like I definitely come from like the musical tradition of you know with like bluegrass instruments and and jamming and and you know, what that is, but it's like, I've never really gotten into, you know, I'm going to hope not to offend any of your, your diehard listeners. I've never been like a huge Bill Monroe fan. Oh, you yeah. know, I came, I came much later on, you know, I was, you know, learning mandolin. I started learning mandolin in 1999 and the people I was influenced by were people like, like I said, like Grisman and like Marshall or, or Chris Feely and, and like so many other players. Like I, I said, like Alan Bybee, and other guys like Adam Steffi or Andy Lethwich and see. And so similarly for my relationship with my relationship with gypsy jazz, my, like some of my groups, you know, that I, that really got me into it would be like the Rosenberg trio. Which, granted, they were playing so much of what they did was just verbatim Django's licks and his, like, arrangements and like, those classic things. Right. But see, then there's other players like Borelli Legren, which was, he's one of my all-time favorite guitar players to this day. So That when good. I was a teenager, I was listening to him in addition to, uh, like, he's got a du- two duo albums with Sylvain Luke. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
is also, he's become one of my absolute favorite guitar players as well. But so like, you know, I can't, I'm not the best person to say like, Oh, this is how Django did it. So do it this way. Mm-hmm. I just listen to a lot of gypsy jazz and I can tell you like who I listen to and who, you know, the people who, the players that have inspired me and that I kind of model or, or, you know, go for the sound that I go for. Um, I would say that, yeah, listening to, to the music and the style is super important for getting that idiomatic, uh, phrasing and vocabulary. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you come from like a bluegrass background, really there's a whole different harmonic palette that gypsy jazz and also jazz and these other styles of music, uh, incorporate and that they operate in. So definitely listening and, you know, uh, there's, uh, gypsy jazz like there's a django fake book that's really accessible if you just google django fake book i you know i run into that book a lot and i'll I'll use it for tunes and charts and stuff um but so i would say that you know from listening to it so much and then you know jamming with people and um that's kind of like you know some people transcribe a lot i've never really i i have gone through periods where i transcribe like licks from a, or a solo or a melody, but it's been a long time since I really did that. But I, what I got from it was that, you know, using my ears, like I do still transcribe. I just don't really write it down, but I like, I can't tell you how many times, you know, it's, it's like a constant thing. That's like, Ooh, I like this. Stop <laughs> it. Pause, like rewind it or like play that again and just play it over and over until you get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's to me, that's like, that's transcribing. I'm just not writing it down. And I'm like figuring out what people are doing. Um, but so much of what I've done with like getting into gypsy jazz and kind of getting better at, you know, speaking that language with the mandolin just comes from listening. Um, but also like you said, like what kind of tunes, there's definitely standard tunes. I think if you go just like you said, Django Reinhardt, you know, whichever album has just the classic recordings on it, like minor swing or Limehouse blues. And, you know, there's so many tunes, I, I, I'm not going to just start naming all the tunes. Oh, sure, it, sure. There are, but you know, and but also, don't be afraid if you like somebody and the, the way they sound to get into their music. You know, the, to me, the modern gypsy jazz players, like I already mentioned, Borelli, but um, Adrian Monyar is an incredible player that to me has inspired me a lot. Rocky Grisset, another guy. There's lots of guys. Um, the Selmer Six or Seven albums. That's a like a three volume project where they're all playing that guitar, that ser- Selmer guitar serial number seven. Um, that's an incredible project. Uh, there's a really awesome band called Le Dois de Lab, um, that they have just incredible arrangements and, you know, incredible playing on that. Um, I'm sure there's like other guys that I'm leaving out that I, that I listen to. So, but, you know, listening to music, that music a lot. And then also, you know, when you start playing the melodies, to me, the groove is so important that to, to being able to operate in with that like idiomatic, you know, language that they're, they're phrasing and the, the licks that they play, you know, you can, to me, cause I play mandolin in more of a modern style. Like I wouldn't call myself like anywhere close to like what, uh, you know, Bill Monroe, uh, you know, his style was some sort of, but a lot of the things I did, I have to recognize that they come from a world post Bill Monroe where he had influenced it, you know, 
so like the way that people play bluegrass and stuff was based on like things that he did. Right. But um, definitely I come from like the new school modern mandolin technique um, and the modern approach and kind of, you know, my sound these days is more inspired by like almost like electric guitar or something like that, where, or even acoustic guitar, but where you have more sustain. Sure. So I really try to like, do you know, hold my notes as long as I can, which is super hard on the mandolin. It's like, naturally you don't have much sustain. Right. Um, but you know, talking about like playing the melodies or, you know, the licks, all of those things, grooving, like participating in the groove in a way that sounds good and it feels good. And it's, it's achieving what the players that are doing gypsy jazz, like what they're going for, like what they're achieving. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think there is a little bit of a, um, it's, it's, uh, a little bit of a comparison in the bluegrassy chop and listening to Django recordings a little bit too, and getting that, getting that vibe. And I think some bluegrass players, you know, might already have a little bit of that innate rhythm sense that you kind of need to uh to to get into that gypsy jazz even just the rhythm stuff because that even the rhythm stuff is cool to play along with before you get for sure get into the um even into the melodies just to sit down and just comp through limehouse blues for example uh-huh. just fun <laughs> you know well yeah for sure and i think that it's interesting that you comment on this because i i do believe that you know coming having come from let's say like the bluegrass tradition in some ways or in many ways, you know, uh, coming from that culture, um, playing acoustic instruments in the United States, um, they come from that tradition, but it's so similar. I mean, you could argue like all day, it's like, Oh, it's completely different. It's way different than gypsy jazz. But if you really look at the similarities, like playing acoustically and jamming and like, I'll play the melody, then you take a solo, like take a break over it. Mm -hmm. And then I'll take a break so much of it is the same that that's almost why it makes sense. If you look at it from that point of view, that why a player would be who comes from bluegrass would get into gypsy jazz or other things like that, you know, playing for me, it's playing jazz on an acoustic instrument. And so that takes shape in different forms. Oftentimes it's gypsy jazz, but I play so much like Latin music. And for years now I've been working on like playing, uh, you know, like Montunos, like from Cuban music and Puerto Rican music, um, like Latin, you know, Caribbean music, um, and also Brazilian, a lot of Brazilian influences and things that I listen to. I love samba. But if I'm playing, you know, Cuban stuff or maybe Brazilian things, I've got different approaches for like how I, because it's it, at the end of the day, it's kind of like I've learned that the point of what I'm doing or kind of what I'm going for is to fit in the groove. How do I successfully like participate in the groove, the essence of what that is. But then if you just kind of look at, um, you know, like one of the songs that I I shared with you is called Which is uh, 
an old like traditional Cuban song, uh, which is kind of like a it's like a danzón, but kind of which is kind of like a bolero, which basically is like a ballad, like a slow kind of ballad, and it's so similar what they would do in like let's say Cuba or be it like a bolero in Mexico, like that tradition with the guitars and the singing, that stuff is so similar to these other styles of music. Uh, if it's like you know bluegrass. Uh, with harmony singing, or if it's like the, the guitar playing is like gypsy jazz players can play things that are so similar to that in the way they would approach playing something like a bolero, like a ballad, you know, um, to me, like, so sometimes I end up doing, if I'm playing like a Cuban danzón thing and I want to go into like a double time or triplet run, it's really kind of like the same technique, same approach as when I'm doing, like I could be literally playing the same type of thing on like a gypsy jazz tune. Because to me, the similarities there is like the harmonic palette, similar, uh, those kind of like swing jazz chords, two minor fives, dominant chords, you know, that kind of like era or genre, uh, harmonically speaking. And then, you know, then I do things that are different. Um, Sometimes they're not, not knowingly, but it's just, I've kind of like developed these ways of playing over the rhythms differently. But I would say that those, there's, there's always those two elements, the harmonic palette of like what scales and what note selection you're choosing from. Mm -hmm. And then how do you make it groove? How do you participate on what the essence of the tune is or the music, you know? Right. And if people want to dig more into this, you do offer private lessons that they can get through your website. For sure, yeah, yeah. man. Because um, uh, yeah, I'm listening to you talking. I'm just like, man, there is so much cool stuff that, like, and you've got a, a, just your, you've got it down. I mean, that's what turned me on to you right away. And um, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, you just you you definitely you got a you've got your own voice out there, and I find it really interesting. And um, and that's why I was so excited to talk to you. And um, that you still Thank it's you. it's interesting too. Because um, um, sometimes you talk on these podcasts, and you've, a lot of people go back to Bill Monroe and say like that that groove there. And it's interesting at first when you said you didn't listen much to Bill Monroe because I was like that's weird because you have such a cool groove and such a feel that a lot of the in some some people don't pick up unless they go there. But you've kind of gotten it uh, like a different route in different styles of music because you definitely have a really really uh, you're a technically proficient player that plays with feel, which is in my opinion tough to it's a tough sell sometimes there's a lot of technically proficient guys on a lot of instruments out there that don't do anything for me because it's just so mm-hmm. much and you have your music has a heart and soul to it it breathes and i think it's awesome oh thanks man yeah absolutely thank you so much for for saying that yeah you, you know bet. like talk about bill monroe again it's funny because like i was saying like i've never been like a huge bill monroe fan it's funny because like he obviously for the bluegrass world he was the creator like you know of that style of music in many ways but like i definitely like when i was coming up you know learning fiddle tunes and stuff and like and learning how to play over like bluegrass vocal tunes i feel like you know i had maybe a natural inclination for time and like when i learned the scales and like the harmony and stuff and like the notes you know i would like i had a a feel for it. You mm-hmm. know, like I can play bluegrass. I feel, I feel like if I, if somebody heard me playing bluegrass or, you know, there wouldn't be any sense of like, Oh, this guy doesn't play bluegrass or he plays other styles. It's almost, you know, to the contrary, it's like getting really that understanding of how to, you know, 
play the rhythms and, and bluegrass or something, but then like it all grows from there. You know, it's not like you're limited to one style. Exactly. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. And I and I love that. And I love that's again like I love I love mandolin so much. Like I love all aspects of it. I love the dudes who are just like straight up bluegrass players, but I also love people who mm-hmm. who push the boundaries and who who look at different instruments and find um there can they you can also be inspired by that and follow your own path. There is no one set path for mandolin. Some people might think there is, <laughs> but you know what I mean. That's why, that's why I love. I feel about like it. we're in uncharted territory for a lot. Of it. I mean, there's been these you know these icons of the mandolin who have done so much and continue to do so much, and then there's there's kind of a new generation you know of of people, but we're continuing to take the mandolin you know into places. I think that generally the mandolin uh hopefully is just becoming more and more popular as time goes on but i think like definitely in previous eras the mandolin was popular but for like doing a certain thing and then now you know mandolin there's definitely like an avant-garde style like a modern take on what the mandolin can do and it's funny because like for me like i'm kind of doing trying to do these things that maybe aren't super uh, modern, although I do try to go oftentimes for like more of a modern sound, be it like in jazz or something, but really oftentimes what I'm trying to do is just kind of things that have already been done, but I'm just adapting it to the mandolin, right? Right. you know, and be it gypsy jazz or, or different styles in like the Latin American, you know, music world. So I've got two more questions for you here, Isaac. And um, the first one is uh, if you had 10 minutes a day to recommend something for someone to do who maybe not doesn't have all day to play mandolin or and even an hour, but they just want to get better. What is something that you would recommend that they work on? Mm, that's an interesting question. You know, when I am teaching people kind of at different levels, it's cause it's hard to say if, if you're talking to a beginner, but the advice is probably going to be a little bit different than if you're talking to somebody who's been playing for 10 years and they, you know, they already know all these tunes and they already have all these things that they do. Um, and they kind of have like a functioning vocabulary or, but you know, like when I pick up the mandolin to me, I, you know, sometimes I kind of struggle with lately. I've been getting some like pain in my hands and I've, I've kind of learned to take it slow, you know, because I've, I've been to played so many gigs where I end up playing like way too hard because I can't hear myself. And that's over years and years of doing that. Like you can kind of like develop some pain issues or something like that. I I think that it's really important, important to work on technique, you know, technique. I'm such, I consider myself uh, like a highly technical player. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the advice that I always have for beginners, you know, if you're going to pick up the mandolin, you only have 10 minutes. I would say, don't try to do something that's above what you can do because then it's not really constructive practice. You're not really building. You're just kind of like, if you try to skip the technique, part then you're you don't want to have to go back later and try to work on things that are like fundamental sure. so it's hard to answer that like 10 minute a day question like for because it really depends but i would say for beginners um really getting and establishing you know and it, maybe it means taking lessons with some folks and trying to like figure out what style you're going for but really getting the fundamentals with holding the pick picking through the string with the strings with good tone Mm -hmm. and having proper placement, like with your left hand where it's efficient, you know, you're not doing like wild, like 
fingers, like waving at people, like in between notes <laughs> right, and stuff. Right. <laughs> and, you know, to, from there, like when you have that solid foundation, then you start increasing the speed. So like maybe that 10 minutes a day, if that's all you have, but that's fine, but it's going to look different as time goes on. Like as you start getting better at things, you know, so my general advice would be, you know, it's hard to say, cause like I said, if it's a beginner, that's going to be different mm-hmm. than somebody who's got lots of experience, but definitely like focusing on, on technique, but also make it fun. And that sounds kind of cliche, but you know, the whole point of learning an instrument or hopefully the point for people is to be able to play and, you know, people are going to have different goals, but, um, oftentimes it's, you know, my goal, I think since the beginning was to play with other people, kind of a communal social thing, being able to play with people. So using your ears, um, to identify like what's happening in music so you can take part in that and participate. Um, so, you know, it's hard to say kind of like what an exercise would be, um, maybe listening to music and like figuring out like what's going on and, and kind of figuring out how other people talk about music. No, I think those are all good things. I mean, I think even for somebody who's advanced, you can always still work on those things mm-hmm. of like, look at the left hand and make sure you're not, you know, mm-hmm. completely. Well, and as, yeah, as you, as let's say, you know, as you progress, it can, it always changes like what you're going for or like, okay, now you're ready to do something that's even harder. So, cause now that you've mastered like that basic, like first position or now like you've got that standard kind of lick, but now let's do this like new thing that's harder, more difficult. You know, you're going to use a little bit of different technique. We're going to use like, you're going to slide here with this finger, but then you're going to shift with another finger to get these notes Yeah. to open yourself up to this part of the fretboard. So it's always, for me, it's like I've been playing for now for almost 20 years and I still can like find a concept for me now. Like when I pick up the mandolin and play my 10 minutes, if I have 10 minutes, maybe I'm just worried about, or like thinking, obsessing over like this diminished idea. And it's still, I'm still thinking about like, Oh, but what's the technique in the left hand? Like if I want to make it efficient or, you know, thinking, maybe I'm not thinking about the technique because it's a little bit more intuitive now. Mm -hmm. And I'm really just focusing on tone. Uh, but I'm, I'm just thinking like, what are the notes? Right. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. And then, and then the final question, as it is mandolins and beer, do you have a favorite beer? Certainly. <laughs> Do you have a current favorite beer that you like? So the short answer is that um, my go-to beer is probably uh, Modelo. Oh, yeah, nice. And so for many years, because I, I enjoy like the Mexican beers a lot, yeah. because I like, I appreciate that they're lighter. I mean, I like all types of beer, you know, and it's sometimes it's seasonal, like in the winter, I definitely like stouts and porters. Um, I don't really like IPAs uh, that much, which, you know, uh, now I'm like, you know, hurting my popularity with the, the other crowd. Like, so the Bill people are starting, like, I'm like a listener's guy. Now the IPA people are like, okay, never mind. Oh my gosh. No, but, I need a Bill Monroe IPA shirt. That's what I need. <laughs> yeah. That's so well, funny. Well, so, you know, I have, I like lots of different things, um, but I will say in Nashville, you know, we have a lot of breweries yeah. here and there's one brewery called uh tailgate which i don't know if you've when you've been in town if you've yeah uh, i was just heard about w- that i was there in december we went there when we were there at that they have a lot of interesting beers and like for i remember when i first started going there i was was fascinated with the uh peanut butter milk stuff. yeah yeah um 
which is just, it's almost like dessert, but it's, it's delicious. You know, it's, you can have a couple of those and, and feel pretty good, but like they have so many things. I like sours mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, I can, I can do a sour and then get something else. Maybe don't want to drink just sour beers all night, but who knows, you know? So the, you know, I like lots of things, but I would say that oftentimes when, you know, you're going to go to a gas station where it's like, uh, I just, I want to have a, enjoy a beer. My go-to Modelo for the price and like for what it yeah. is, easy drinking. It's like I really just appreciate like the refreshing quality or aspect of that, and so that's kind of like our go-to. That's awesome, man. Well, Isaac, this has been a blast. I'm glad we finally were able to carve out a time to make this happen. Um, you, for sure, I, man. I definitely am a fan of your playing, and uh, it's exciting to pick your brain and 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 it really makes a lot of sense now after listening to yourself and watching you play and then hearing you talk and it makes sense how this, how, how you become what you have by just absorbing so much stuff and making it you. And I think it's great. Oh man, thank you so much. And I, I definitely appreciate what you're doing with your podcast for the mandolin world. I think it's so cool. And you know, uh, more power to you, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thank you. And then when all this stuff is done, hopefully next time I'm in Nashville, we can, uh, we can maybe do some picking and have a, have a beer. I would love that, man. Awesome. For sure. Thanks so much. All right. Big thank you to Isaac for doing the podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Next week is going to be Emery Lester. I'm really excited about that. And uh, as promised at the beginning of the podcast, here is the full version of the track that uh, Isaac did the mandola playing on with the electric mandola, Lullaby of Birdland. So thank you to Isaac for letting us put this on there. And uh, be sure to reach out to Isaac at his website. And uh, we'll see you soon. Cheers, everybody. Have a great week. (laughs) 